Well, it is a blessing to see all of you today. Glad that you're here with us. And uh, if you have a Bible or one nearby, we'd like you to turn in your Bible, if you would, to the book of Philippians chapter 4. We've been working our way through Philippians chapter 4 for a number of weeks. Uh, Today we're going to begin examining verses 10 through 13. That's where we have wound up here in our study. Philippians in chapter 4 and verses 10 through 13 is what we'll be examining as we look at it today. Let's read this together. You can follow along as I read Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. If there is not a Bible, if you do not have a Bible, there is one near you in the pew someplace. The little black-covered Bibles, you are welcome to use one of those. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 4.10, But I rejoiced, <coughs> rejoiced in the Lord greatly, <coughs> that now at last your care for me, speaking to the Philippians, your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A story is told of a very wealthy businessman who docked his yacht at a place where many small boat commercial fishermen also docked their boats. As he got off of his huge yacht, he walked past a fisherman who was sitting by his boat eating a sandwich and some cookies and drinking a Coke with his feet propped up looking out over the ocean. The millionaire said to him, why aren't you out there fishing? Fisherman said, well, I've I've caught enough fish for today. He said, well, why don't you catch more fish than you need? He said, well, what would I do with them? He said, well, you could earn more money, buy a better boat, go out into deeper water, catch even more fish. Then you could purchase bigger nylon nets and catch even more fish. And in a few years, you could have a fleet of boats and you'd be rich like me. The fisherman looked at him and said, well, then, then what would I do? Well, he said, you could sit down and enjoy life. The fisherman said, well, what do you think I'm doing now? You know, someone once said that contentment is when your earning power equals your yearning power. What he meant by that was when you make enough money to get whatever you want. But you know, that that really is not true. Because we are never quite satisfied. You may remember the story I've mentioned to you many times before about the old billionaire John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men in the world in his day. He was the founder back in 1870 and the major shareholder of Standard Oil Company, now known as ExxonMobil. Someone asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money does it take to make a man happy? He said, just a little bit more. And you know, you might be surprised to learn that the Bible says quite a bit about money and material things and contentment. In the Gospels, John the Baptist told some soldiers who came to him and were asking him about the fruits of repentance. By fruits of repentance, they meant proofs of genuine repentance. And they asked him what they needed to do and what John the Baptist told those soldiers that would be a proof that they had genuinely repented of sin was for them to be content with their wages. 
It's in Luke 3.14. The writer of Hebrews challenged his readers to let your conduct or your lifestyle be without covetousness. And that big word simply means a love of stuff, a love of things, a love of money. He said, let your lifestyle be without a love of things and be content with such things as you have. Jesus said in one of his parables, he said, take heed and beware of covetousness, that big word again, the love of money, the love of things. He said, take heed and and beware of that because he said, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. It's a great verse in Luke 12, 15. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And I'd like you, if you would, to turn with me just briefly. We won't read all of the verses, but look at Matthew 6, if you would. We'll be back here to Philippians 4 in just a moment. I'm going to quote some of these verses to you, but I thought, well, there's a section here that we just need to look at. Matthew chapter 6, this is right in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. So right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these words, Matthew 6 and verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." He picks up that thought in verse 24 where he says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The old English word mammon simply means material things, money and stuff and all of that. Jesus said you can't serve God and you can't serve all that stuff at the same time. He, he went on to say, verse 25, Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you eat or what you drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Let your heavenly Father feed, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Now look down at verse 20 or verse 32. For after all these things, I'm sorry, let's go to verse 31. Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Great, great truth there. I love verse 31 and 32. Don't worry about what you're going to eat and drink and wear. He said, God knows that you need all these things. But he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all those things will be added to you. Certainly true for us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, take a look at that if you would, and then we'll be right back to Philippians. 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you had your finger in Philippians, it's just a little beyond Philippians. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I was talking to a fellow before church, 
not a fellow who comes to church here. He just stopped by the church this morning when he saw us pull in, wanted me to pray for him in a certain issue. And he quoted, he actually misquoted this verse to me. This is one of the verses I'm going to read you, one of the most misquoted verses in all of the Bible. And uh, you'll see it here in just, in just a moment. But I want you to begin to read with me here in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Let me read that again. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content, but those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And that's the verse there, verse 10. How many times have you heard, money is the root of all evil? That's not what the verse says. The verse says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It isn't the dollar bill, it isn't that hundred dollar bill you might have in your wallet or that fifty or that twenty. Maybe you're thinking, I wish I had a hundred dollar bill in my wallet. It's not the dollar bill, it's your attitude toward it. It's the way you manage it, it's what you do with it, it's what you strive to, uh, to do in order to get it, what you're willing to do in order to get it. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so in our, in our passage, in these verses we read, and the verses I quoted to you, the Bible identifies contentment as a mark of godly character. And it even commands that we should live with contentment. And in our passage here in Philippians, back to Philippians 4 here, the, the Apostle Paul discusses the issue of contentment, and he describes to us what it actually means. It's been about 10 years since the Apostle Paul had planted this church in Philippi. Paul traveled on to other cities to preach the gospel. He indicates in this letter that the Philippians had supported his ministry periodically. There in Philippians 4, look at verse, uh, verse 14. It says, Nevertheless, you've done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you, did, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So they had been supporting him while he was going around preaching and starting churches and declaring the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But now he hasn't heard from them for a while. But he doesn't scold them. He doesn't say, I can't believe you guys quit supporting me. I really need this money. Moan and moan and moan. No, that's not what he said at all. He says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. He's simply saying that I, I accept the fact that you have not had opportunity to support me in, in, until now. And he said, I'm okay with that. And verses 10 and 11 that we just read there, look at verse 11, says, Not that I speak in regard to need, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Verses 10 and 11 give us the, the first principle of learning to be content. The first principle is this, that I am satisfied with God's providence. I'm satisfied 
with God's providence. Now we mention God's providence from time to time, but I want to develop those thoughts with you today so you understand exactly what we're talking about when we talk about God's providence. God works His will in this world and among His people basically in two ways. Miracles and providence. Miracles are when God directly intervenes in the events of life in ways that are not natural or normal. What you would ordinarily expect to happen did not happen. Those, those sorts of things happen periodically, not all of the time. Many years ago, Carol was driving our van into, into the town of Valir. It was icy that day. She was driving the van and she was all by herself. Well, she had the kids with her. I was not there. And she hit a patch of ice. Some of you guys that drive that road by Valir, you know where Eleanor Swanson used to live, right on that curve there. And Carol hit a patch of ice on that curve, and she went off. That's a steep ditch. And she went off that ditch and down into the snow and it said she just felt like it was just this light little bump. It bent the running board on the van slightly. We took the fence down. A friend helped me pull the van out through the fence and up into Eleanor's driveway and we drove the van out and drove home. The van didn't even have a scratch on it. How did she get from the road down here with a steep ditch and no tracks there? Just, whew. I, I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. But can I, can I absolutely say with absolute assurance that the hand of God directly intervened? I think He did. I can't assure it. I didn't. I wasn't there with a camera filming it. But it sure makes you wonder. That's not the normal, ordinary thing that you would expect to happen. We recently had a a relative of ours, a little a little kid, fall off of a bathroom counter and hit his head. On the, on the tile floor in that bathroom so hard that it cracked the tile. He had a little tiny dot back of his head. Five minutes later, he's out running around. He said, how could his head crack the tile and not crack his head? I don't know, but it didn't. You know, sometimes God directly intervenes in the events of life in ways that you would never expect. They're not normal. There are actually very clear miracles all over the Bible. The ten plagues in Egypt. The crossing of the Red Sea. The crossing of the Jordan River 40 years later. The walls of Jericho coming down. And many, many, many more. In the Bible you had... You had three or four basic time periods when there were direct interventions of God, many miracles that were directly by the hand of God. The ministry of Moses, the ministry of Elijah, the ministry of Elisha, and the ministries of Jesus and the apostles. Interestingly, all four of those times of great miracles lasted about 40 years. But miracles are not the norm for us, regardless of what many might say today. They may occur on certain rare occasions. But most of the time, what we experience and what we are experiencing as followers of the Lord Jesus is the providence of God. God's providence is not Him intervening in the natural order of things in this world. Providence is God taking all of the words 
and actions and events and decisions and activities of our lives, all of the day-to-day happenings of our lives, and He weaves them together for our good and His glory, fulfilling His purposes for us and for this world. It's just as supernatural as a miracle because God is doing it, but God is taking all of the normal day-to-day events of our lives and He's weaving them together to fulfill His purposes in us. The most well-known verse in all of the Bible for God's providence, you could probably quote to me, Romans 8.28, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Not that all things are good, but all things work together for good to those who love God. What's happening there? It's God's providence. Another great verse I quoted to you, I think, last week or the week before, Proverbs 16.9. Solomon said, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We all lay out our plan for the week, but all sorts of things happen that we know nothing about. We plan our way, but the Lord directs our steps. That's providence. At the end of that beautiful story of Joseph, Joseph recognizes and he praises the providence of God when Joseph tells his brothers there in Genesis 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to preserve all of your lives. That's providence. Mordecai in the story of Esther, he recognizes the providence of God when he tells Esther, maybe you were brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. He says to Esther, maybe that's why God has allowed you to be the queen, so you could save our people from destruction. Mordecai is recognizing the providence of God. You see, God is overseeing and directing all the circumstances of life. And great men and women of God throughout history have recognized that. God is sovereign, meaning He's in control. God is all-powerful. We use the big word omnipotent. God is all-knowing. We, call, we say He is omniscient. He knows all things. His knowledge and His understanding it is, is infinite, meaning it has no limits. God's will is perfect. God's purposes are right. So, so He orchestrates and directs and oversees the circumstances and situations of life. And He's doing all those things because of who He is. Because of his character. God is not just playing some, some sovereign chess game with, with, with humanity in order to have some fun and occupy himself. And he is motivated by his character and his purposes. He is omnipotent and omniscient and sovereign and eternal and infinite. And he is performing his righteous and holy purposes for this world and for us. So we have to trust the providence of God. If we are going to learn to be content, as the Apostle Paul said in this passage, I have learned to be content. If we're going to be, if we're going to learn to be content, we have to be satisfied with God's providence. God can do whatever He wants, and that's okay with me. Has to be our attitude. Remember, Paul's writing this letter while he's under house arrest. He can't work as a tent maker. He's under house arrest. And so he's basically dependent on the graciousness of of the Lord's people in order for him to eat and and, and live. So when he mentions to the Philippians that he hasn't received a gift from them in a while, he quickly adds, it's okay. I know you care, you just didn't have the opportunity. He was satisfied with God's providence. 
Our next two thoughts are related to this first one. If we are learning to be content, we are not only satisfied with God's providence, we are satisfied with God's provision, and we're satisfied in our situation. Look at verse 11 and 12. Paul says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am, and he doesn't mean Montana, Idaho, or Wyoming. It means whatever condition I'm in, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now we need to clarify one thing as we're thinking about this issue of, of contentment. Paul is not saying, and we are not saying, and the Bible is not saying, that you should just accept life for what it is and never try to improve yourself. The, the Bible does not teach that we should sit around waiting for God to drop it down out of the sky on us like little baby birds in a nest with their mouths open waiting for mama bird to bring them a bug to eat. Even a casual reading of the book of Proverbs blows that idea out the window. Hard work and diligence and thinking and planning ahead and effort and discipline are all encouraged and even commanded in God's Word. We all want food to eat. We want a car that runs. We want a decent place to live. And there is nothing unbiblical about working to improve your life and your circumstances. But what if the providence of God brings you to a place of hardship? What if the providence of God brings you into a crisis of your health or your finances or your relationships or your business? What will our attitude be? You see, if we are learning to be content, then we are not only satisfied with God's providence, we will then be satisfied with God's provision and will be satisfied in our situation. Remember, Paul is not writing these words from his resort hotel in Rome overlooking the Tiber River when he's calling for room service. He's in a small house or an apartment chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, 7 days a week with no means of income. And the Roman government does not provide food and clothing and hot showers for prisoners. If somebody doesn't bring you something to eat in prison, you starve. During his second imprisonment, Paul asked Timothy, you can read it in 2 Timothy 4 sometime, he asked Timothy to bring him his cloak, and he said, do your best to come before winter. Paul's thinking, winter's coming, and I'm going to freeze to death in this dirty, rotten, filthy prison if, if, if Timothy can't get here with my cloak. You see, in Paul's day, there was no government funding for prisoners. You didn't get, as they say, three hots and a cot at the expense of the taxpayer. didn't happen in the Roman world. You were in prison, and if you didn't have friends or family or somebody bring you something to eat, you starved to death. And so Paul, when he's writing these verses, from that, from that circumstance, he's under house arrest. And he says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. He said, I have learned to be full and to be hungry. I have learned to abound and I have learned to suffer need. I know how to be full, he says. I know how to be hungry. 
Right now, Paul says, I'm full. In fact, he says it right in verse 18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things that you sent me. Epaphroditus, as we saw him earlier in the book of Philippians, brought this wonderful gift to Paul from the church in Philippi. And he says, hallelujah, this is wonderful. Praise God. I'm full. This is great. What will happen a month from now, I have no idea. But regardless of what happens, he says, I am thankful for God's providence. I am satisfied with God's provision. I am content in my current situation. This is what God has for me right now, and I'm content. And that brings us to our last thought, that if we're learning to be content, it's because we are being strengthened by God's power. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Verse 13, very very well-known verse, of course, very famous verse. It's all over the place from wall art to t-shirts. I want to remind you, one of our Bible study principles that we repeat from time to time, that the power of a text is in its context. All the context meaning all the verses around it. The power of a text is in its context. When you read that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, we, we immediately see that this is one of those great landmark verses, this powerful principle, this essential truth, a verse to hang your faith on. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But be careful to not overdo the application aspect of the verse. I saw a cartoon in a Christian magazine some years ago that pictured a husband in a kitchen trying to open a jar for his wife. And he's quoting this verse to himself as he groaned and gripped the... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as he's trying to open the jar for his wife. And his wife is saying to him, open the jar, honey, don't slaughter the verse. <laughs> you see, because the power of the text is in its context. Paul can be content, chained to a Roman guard under house arrest. He can be satisfied with God's providence when he's hungry and when he's full. He can be satisfied with God's provision when his money bag is full and when it's empty. Whatever my situation, Paul says, I am satisfied with what God is doing with me. You see, the end of the book of Acts indicates that Paul, Paul had to rent the house where he was being held. Interesting. He was paying for his own imprisonment. But I'm sure it was enormously better than the alternative in the standard Roman jail. But Paul had definite financial needs. But verse 13 indicates to us that, that he could handle any of life's situations with peace and contentment because Jesus Christ was strengthening him with Christ's power. It wasn't Paul's mental fortitude and determination, although I'm sure he had a lot of it. But he credited all of his fortitude, all of his courage to stand for Christ under these circumstances. Paul credited all of that to being strengthened by Jesus Christ. And I want to close, if I could, by refreshing your memory with these fabulous passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, you will recognize these immediately. We refer to them periodically, another one of those great pivotal landmark verses. 
2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, of course, and he says in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. You get this picture now, Paul, he's been, he, is, he, could, he could have been a very proud man. Because God used him to write nearly half of our New Testament. Thirteen of the twenty-seven books written by the hand of Paul, twelve or thirteen of them. And so he says, God allowed this, whatever it is, he doesn't identify what the thorn in the flesh is. He calls it a a messenger of Satan to to buffet me. I just get knocked around. It's annoying. It's terrible. It's irritating. It it, it bugs me. It it, it makes me feel weak. It makes me feel inept. I just don't know what to do with this thorn in the flesh. And he says, I prayed three times for God to take it away. And God says in verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know what? The Apostle Paul was strengthened by the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. When I am weak, then I am strong. There are a number of different Greek words translated strong or strength in the New Testament, but it's interesting that the word strong here in verse 10 of of, uh, of 2 Corinthians 12 is the very same root word as the word strengthen in Philippians 4.13. When I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Same root word. Grace and strength. God's strength. God's grace. What an incredible combination. We sang last week here, the little song, Grace Alone. Every promise we can make, every prayer and step of faith, every difference we will make is only by His grace. Every mountain we will climb, every ray of hope we shine, every blessing left behind is only by His grace. Every soul we long to reach, every heart we hope to teach, every, uh, everywhere we share His peace is only by His grace. Every loving word we say, every tear we wipe away, every sorrow turned to praise is only by His grace. Grace alone which God supplies, strength unknown He will provide, Christ in us, our cornerstone, we will go forth in grace alone. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know how to be hungry. I know how to be full. I know how to abound. I know how to suffer need. Are you satisfied with God's providence? Are you satisfied with His provision? Are you satisfied with the situation God's placed you in? Just read a quote this morning where a fellow said, Christians never fall asleep next to a roaring ocean or a fire, but we get lazy in the sunshine. 
So God puts us in tough circumstances to keep us awake. Are you satisfied? And I mean spiritually awake. You know that's what I mean. Are you satisfied with the situation God has placed you in? Are you being strengthened by God's power? Are you learning to be content in the Lord Jesus? Are you sure you even know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because none of this will work if you don't. If you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, none of these principles of Scripture will operate for you. You have to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you have to be content with what He is doing in your life. I pray that it will be true of you. Let's pray. Father, we are asking you today for help. We are certainly weak. We're all sinners. Every human being ever born on this planet except for Jesus Christ was a sinner and is a sinner. And Lord, we know that we struggle with thoughts and attitudes and may not be necessarily what we do, but it's what we think and what we feel. We know that you know our hearts and you know where we are and you know what we've done and you know everything we've ever thought about doing that we didn't do. You know everything about us. And by your marvelous grace, you have still offered us salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, we who know you as our Savior, may we learn to be content. May we be satisfied with what you are doing in our lives. May we be able to, whether we're full or whether we're hungry, whether times are tough or times are good, whether things are easy or hard, whatever may be going on in life, Lord, may we learn to trust you. I pray, Father, for any person here this morning who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray they'll bow their hearts before you and they'll submit to your claims on their life. And Lord, for we who do know you as our Savior, we certainly have many faults and failings. We're still weak. We still struggle. May we, Lord, rise to contentment and learn to trust what you're doing in our lives. May we be strengthened by your power as we face these daily circumstances so that we can stand not just for ourselves, but we want to stand for you. We want to stand up for the Lord Jesus and be what you want us to be. So help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.